On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin. We're going to be talking encampment sites, safe encampment sites, authorized encampment sites. It's something that the city is talking about. Would this work? We're also going to talk about vacant office space. There's a lot of it in downtown Hamilton. Could we turn that into housing? It's a tricky one. A Eurovision we're going to be discussing. If you don't know anything about Eurovision except for the Will Ferrell movie, it's okay. We're going to help you out. Today is the deadline for the Ottawa Senators bidding. Who is going to win ownership of the Ottawa Senators? There's a whole bunch of celebrities in the mix. Canada has given billions of dollars to Volkswagen to build an electric vehicle battery plant. You know about this. Well, now a whole bunch of other companies apparently are saying, well, where's our money? Have we opened a Pandora's box? We'll get into that. And of course, late last week, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they are out. We'll talk about that. Where do they go? And the Oilers are out too. No more Canada. 30 years. We'll get to all of it. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We have had a discussion in this city for years now, a couple of years anyway, a significant discussion for at least a couple of years about encampments, about people living in tents, homeless people living in tents at different places. And they, there have been those who have been supportive. There have been those who have been opposed to it. Among the audience listening right now, I'm sure we have both as well. Well, city staff are now proposing sanctioned encampment sites, which as I understand it, and we'll find out in just a second here, would be a zone where you are permitted to set up your tent and it's a safe place that you'd be allowed to stay presumably and there wouldn't be fights over that, that that would be a, 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 a legal tent zone. Could this work though? Michelle Baird is the Director of Housing Services for the City of Hamilton, joins us now. Michelle, thank you for this today. Good morning, Scott. So I wonder if you could, is my understanding of what I just said sort of what you have in mind or what's been talked about? Is this essentially creating a a place where you, if you're a homeless person, could set up a tent and that would be a legal, fine, safe place to be? Yes, essentially that's correct. So basically it would be a site that's either, it's on public property uh, perhaps park space, perhaps other public property. Uh, we know where the site is. People aren't required to move. So there is some digni- dignity with respect to where they're spending their time. Also, it allows us to know where individuals are staying so that we can effectively provide case management. Service providers know where to find individuals. So it's much easier to connect with services. We would also want to see some infrastructure provided. Uh, so that people have services to meet their uh, basic human needs. This sounds, what you're describing sounds an awful lot like the proposal that has existed and been talked about for the tiny homes that just hasn't come into fruition yet. It sounds very similar. It is similar to the proposal for tiny homes. I think the difference, of course, being tiny homes uh, limited in number, looking for one site, and ultimately they are uh, tiny cabins, if you will. So this instead would be a site where individuals can have their tents undisturbed. How big of a space would we need for something like this? Or or do you, or is the vision for more than one? Is it Are we thinking of one bigger area or a number of them? So ideally, we would have more than one. Um, We engage with stakeholders, uh, both individuals who live in encampments now and those who support individuals in encampments. And ultimately, uh, the desire was to have more than one. We also don't want to just have one large 
uh, encampment, it probably won't meet the needs of everybody. So ideally we would be looking for, you know, three or four encampment sites that are sanctioned in different parts of the city. And, and how big would they have to be to work? I mean, are we talking about a, like a, a football field or a big park or, or five or 10 tents or like what, what would be the idea? So ideally it wouldn't be a big football field that it's somewhere smaller than that. And it depends on how many tents we want to see in a sanctioned site. So if we're looking at a space that can accommodate perhaps five to 10 tents, certainly uh, larger than a parkette, but not as big as a football field. So those pieces are yet to be determined depending on whether or not the idea of sanctioned sites are approved. The one part of this that makes me a little maybe doubtful, I guess, is the, the city and council couldn't figure out where to put a, te- a, a tiny home site. They had a site, they couldn't make it happen yet anyway. I just, I mean, is do you see council giving a thumbs up to putting tents in a neighborhood park? Because I just, I just see that there would be endless blowback from that neighborhood and council would back off. Uh, it's a very good point, Scott. I think the challenge right now is the encampments uh, that we're experiencing in Hamilton, certainly there isn't a solution. And we're certainly not suggesting that this is a solution to homelessness. It's a complex issue, but we do know that we do need to find a way to sort of balance the needs of, of the neighborhoods and communities, as well as the needs of individuals who do not have a place to live. For lots of individuals, shelter spaces, of course, are tight. There are uh, barriers for some individuals entering shelters. And so it's not an easy solution to fix. And so we're going to present this as we need to find a way to respect the rights of those individuals who unfortunately don't have a house to live in while also finding a way to manage the needs of the community. Yeah. And look, your point is fair. And, and at the same time, I look at this and I think we there are many people, all of us probably, who are like, oh, you know, great idea. And then all of a sudden you propose, oh, by the way, it's going to be in the park at the end of your street and suddenly we're far less enthusiastic about this. I mean, I just, I, I, I don't know how many people would step up and say, oh, please, yes, put it in the park at the end of my street. It's a tough thing to find the place. It is going to be a tough thing to find a place. And I think you're absolutely correct. This is the struggle that we had with the HATS proposal and it continues to be a struggle. However, at this point in time, it's also a struggle with the encampments that exist and we're hearing those same messages. So really trying to look for perhaps another solution. Some other municipalities are in the same place as us and allowing for sanctioned encampments uh, in a way to sort of address the needs of the community and address encampments. So it is a proposal that we're putting forward and we believe that it is the right opportunity for the city right now. That is Michelle Baird. She is the Director of Housing Services for the City of Hamilton. Michelle, thank you for this today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk vacancy rates for a minute. I know it's the most exciting thing to hear vacancy rates. That's well, no, there's a there's a a real story behind vacancy rates and I'm talking about an office space, especially in the downtown, and people who are coming up with potential ideas. Specifically, we have a housing problem in the city. And according to numbers as recent as March, we have, well, early February, nearly 15% of all office space in the city was sitting empty, according to data provided to the spectator by real estate firm Colliers International. So we've got 15% of our downtown office space. Oh, and by the way, they're saying things could actually get worse. 
15% sitting vacant. We don't have enough housing. Is there a chance that we could take some of that vacant office space, rework it, reposition it, and make it into affordable housing or housing of any kind? Kill two birds with one stone, essentially. Let me bring in Jeff Pagan. He is the president of New Horizon Development Group. Uh, joins us now. Jeff, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Good morning to you. Well, I mean, this is an idea that it's it's not, I don't think, a brand new idea. It's just become a lot more uh, relevant, perhaps, because coming out of COVID, people learning to stay at home, working out of home, suddenly we've got this vacant office space. Is it a realistic one plus one equals two, empty office space, builders, we end up with housing? Uh, sadly, I, my, my opinion on that is it's not quite that easy. Uh, you know, there are, there are um, new built office buildings that are on their way up in other cities that are being reimagined into residential as completely vacant. Uh, what you're referring to is partial vacancy within an office building that's existing and has other office tenants in it. And there are a number of factors that, you know, will be the deciding issues on that. Um, many of them are building code related when you have an interface with commercial uses and residential uses. Many of them are in high rise structures where you just can't put a bathroom on one floor without putting a drain that goes down to the, the sewer systems many floors below. And so, you know, we call them stacks in the business. You have to stack the bathrooms so that the pipes are all in the same place on all of the same floors in order to make it efficient. So not quite as easy as one plus one equals, um, you know, the solution for that. Uh, but it's nice to see that people are thinking about uh, housing. So, well, Jeff, let me jump in for this one sec, because yeah. the point you just made is a really interesting one, because it, what it sounds like is, uh, let's even say, and, and you point out also a good point that, you know, we, we, you do have some people still working in these office buildings, so it's more complicated. But even let's say that you could clear out an entire building that exists as an office. Mm-hmm. There are structural things. It's not, it's not simply as easy as putting up walls then, because of the demands, the housing and office demands are different things. Correct. And they use their services at different times of day and they use uh, parking if that's an issue at different times of day as well. So, um, you know, the the need for housing, in, especially in the core, you would hope would help drive opportunities for employers to want to locate in the core. Uh, if you were at the mayor's breakfast last week, Mayor Horvath said um, quite, you know, accurately that the tax differential in Hamilton between the commercial and office amount percentage and the residential percentage is about 86% residential and 14% office. And you don't want that uh, lower number in the office industrial side or employment taxes as they're referred to. You want there to be a better balance between the two because services, again, as you mentioned with how the buildings operate, uh, the, the taxes operate in different ways as well, and the city, um, you know, requires more office and industrial, not less, at this point, um, in order to solve its financial challenges as well. Okay, so I know that your company was bidding on to do the work, and I think it was Delta High School once upon a time to turn that into residential. Um, why would that then be if, if the if the challenges of uh, build a, of office space or school space is different from residential. Why would that have been 
a, a workable, financially viable idea, but an office tower wouldn't. So uh, we are the owners of Delta with our partners in Lausanne Homes, and we are moving ahead with uh, proposals to turn it into fully residential. And the difference is uh, on the Delta site, first of all, uh, it's a completely vacant building that we can do the required demolition inside to make it 100% residential. So uh, for saving the structure and and doing the the right thing for the historical significance of that structure, uh, that's a, a challenging but very doable renovation to loft-style condos that's been done at other places in Hamilton very successfully. Then with the excess property on the Delta site, we're able to start from scratch and build other residential, some of which will help subsidize the, the very costly um, save the school um, thought process that we all have and we want to do. It's just you know, from an economics point of view, you have a little bit of extra buffer because you have extra residential opportunities that are start from scratch on the same site. So not really apples to apples. Okay. So, so you have to, in order to be able to do this, you almost have to gut whatever it is from the inside, which it sounds very expensive as opposed to a new build. Correct. And it is certainly more expensive than a new build. Uh, and if you're talking about an office situation, you know, a lot of times offices don't have windows that open even, um, most times actually. So if you're talking about a traditional office tower, you not only have to get the inside, but you have to reskin the glazing mm. in order to allow for operating windows and such for uh, residential code uses. So, okay, Jeff. So what then do we do? So we've got this vacant, and maybe this isn't an answer that you can give. I don't know. But yeah, we've <laughs> got now this 15% or so of vacant building space. Is there any use for it then? Well, there's a very active economic development department in the city of Hamilton that uh, has attracted a number of big industries to the periphery of the city. And the question is, how do we attract some further office uses to the downtown core? Uh, There's not a short-term solution for filling office space, but there's a short-term, there's a long-term problem if you don't have available office space. The long-term problem is you can't attract employers. So somewhere in there, there's a healthy balance. And 15% is too much to have vacant, but 0% is not good either. So it's a matter of how do we, as a city, uh, create an environment that attracts businesses to fill that 15% by about 10 of it and leave five available for the the healthy ins and outs and growing companies to move within the city limits. That is Jeff Pakin. He is the president of New Horizon Development Group. Jeff, always appreciate the chat. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You as well. Um, Look, that, that, that is... Jeff makes a really good point. The one thing, though, in that, and look, this is not, Jeff is a builder and Jeff builds housing and other things. We don't know yet, I don't think, what the future of office space really looks like. We don't know how many people are ever going to come back to offices. We're, we're in a, we're in a bit of an unknown period here. It's going to be a really interesting thing to see if maybe as time goes on, 15% becomes 20 rather than five or 25. Who knows how this is going to work itself out now. We're, we're, you know, it's a, there's no guarantee that normal returns to normal. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Eurovision 
The biggest contest in the world, I would expect, draws 160 million viewers. Bigger than the Super Bowl. A Swedish singer won it this year. But we talked to Subwoofer about the Eurovision phenomenon. We connected with them last night, late last night in Norway. Here they are. They are Gota Ormasun and Carl Henrik Wall from Subwoofer. Gentlemen, thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Gauta, I am I am not exaggerating when I talk about how big Eurovision is, am I? No, uh, yeah, it's uh, you're totally right. It's uh, like the biggest TV show in the world, in the universe, actually. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it, and and it's difficult, Carl, for for Canadians to really get it. I think because a because it's not broadcast here. You can find it on YouTube, perhaps if you know where to look for it. But but it, I mean, over in Europe. Um, I mean, Subwoofer, you guys were a huge, huge story. Yeah, we were. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there, Gauta, is there anywhere that you can go in Europe, honestly, and someone doesn't recognize you or doesn't talk about this? Uh, well, yeah, there is. I mean, not everyone, like, we were also in the, under the mask uh, so much of the time. So, and, you know, I'm. I was already famous in Norway uh, long before Eurovision and long before Subwoofer. But outside of Norway, I can go around without people like knowing me actually. But w- whenever I take on the Subwoofer mask, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be hard. Well, you you even you were even in a video with King Charles and Queen Camilla. I saw. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Carl, Carl, what, Carl, what is it about this? What is the magic of Eurovision that makes it so huge? Well, if, if you think about the history of uh, Eurovision, it's uh, it's uh, a peace initiative after World War II when all countries got together to celebrate unity uh, what, by doing this song contest. And most of Europe has been a part of this for uh, many decades. And uh, there is this the thing about your vision is that you can go you can be extra you can go large you can do like things you can't really do on normal music videos or normal tv shows you can do almost whatever you like and that is so fascinating for so many people to see what's going on on stage because you will always be surprised in the next act so yeah so my understanding is you have three minutes but in those three minutes you can do almost anything you want yeah and do people? I mean, people really do even the most, well, you guys did the most, you know, hilariously wild things. Well, let's write a song called Give That Wolf a Banana, Dress Up Like <laughs> Yellow Facebooks, and Go To Your Vision. Yes, check. <laughs> well, tell me. There's so many crazy, like, songs and uh, stage shows. So we knew that if we're going to do anything that people will remember, we have to, you know, do it all the way. Like, yeah. Well, I heard you have to tell me this because I, I understand that um, when it came time when you thought about writing a song, you and Ben, who's the other the other singer, um, came up with the idea. Let's. Am I right that let's write the most ridiculous song we possibly can think of? Is that it? Was that kind of the idea? Um, maybe not like in the beginning of the session we had, but it just turned out to. <laughs> to be more and more ridiculous the more we wrote on it uh, yes, um, I had this idea 
making a songs about wolves because then I knew I could use some like howling. I could because I <laughs> when I sing I uh, I could use my voice like you know woo. <laughs> I could do stuff like that. And yeah. so I wanted to okay maybe I can sing about wolves and make something a little like maybe a little bit silly, but uh, then uh, Ben. Um, he was the one that said, like, give that wolf a banana. And, and that I, was because you were late for breakfast that day and <laughs> happened to be eating a banana. <laughs> yeah. And I was actually thinking about Little Red Riding Hood, that story. And, uh, I, like, banana had nothing to do with my ideas. So, but he and was that like, was the brilliance yeah. of that session because you try to make sense out of something that was impossible to make sense out of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, is it true? Do I understand that 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 the plan was not necessary? Was the plan for you guys to sing it initially, or was it for someone else to? But then you couldn't find anyone who would sing a song called "Give That Wolf a Banana." Yeah, I mean, we went to the camp. It was a songwriting camp, and we are songwriters. And I had no plan uh, i mean no none of us had any plan going on the stage <laughs> ourselves <laughs> but uh the problem is that we kind of wrote uh a song that uh everyone seemed to like but we, and we didn't have an artist for it and uh so a lot of the stuff that I sang on the demo. We knew it was going to be hard to find somebody else that maybe could sing it because I sang it in, with my kind of special voice. <laughs> and uh, also, who? How do you find the artist that say yes to sing a song that called "Give That Wolf a Drama"? <laughs> so, that's, that's but yeah. also another aspect of that is because it was so strange watching audition tapes of humans performing that song. You couldn't like quite take it seriously. But the second we saw someone with masks sing it, then it made sense. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, what does the fox say would be, you know, sort of in the same vein, I suppose, not, not the same, but, um, Carl, mm -hmm. one of the things about Eurovision also that, uh, I think makes it very unique is, you know, we over here, we have American Idol, we have America's Got Talent. They would probably be the biggest, the, the most similar things I would think, except, Eurovision has a uh, a national component to it where countries send teams. So there is a rooting interest. There's a cheering interest from each country, right? Uh, yeah, it is. It, it, it's slightly, um, uh, if you recall, America's, um, I'm sorry, as the song contest they had in America last year. They <clears throat> based that on Eurovision. Okay, okay. There, I think there is like 37 different nations that are voting into Eurovision. And um, then um, all countries have national selections. Someone take that's really serious. Like like Sweden, they have maybe like 40 songs and they vote the for that, the number wow. one song they want from the country. And some other countries are more like, oh, oh yeah, it's Eurovision again. We have to send someone. Yeah, let me just take a couple of phone calls and then they just find a friend or someone who's in. But most countries take it super serious, have national selection, make big TV shows, more finals. And uh, yeah, they send a song that truly represents the country. 
I should ask before we go, we only have a few seconds left here. I mean, Canada doesn't go. Maybe we should because Australia, I don't believe, is part of Europe. Last geography I took, but Australia <laughs> sent a, a group. So it, maybe it's yeah. time for Canada to send someone. We Absolutely. sent Celine Dion once upon a time, but she sang for Switzerland. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so glad I didn't meet her. <laughs> Competing with Celine Dion, that's not fair. Uh, before we go, Gauta, um, very quickly, the, the one thing that many people around here might know of Eurovision was Will Ferrell did a movie uh, a number of years ago, The Story of Fire Saga. Did you ever see that movie? I did see that movie, yeah. And was that a good representation or was it insulting of Eurovision? You know what? I, I actually saw that uh, on the plane home from Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> and? Um, and I, I, I was actually in the jury for um, the national uh, final in uh, Iceland. Um, and we were there performing on the final in uh, Eurovision Iceland. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really... <laughs> Funny to watch that uh, <laughs> film on the way back. It is uh, it is absolutely worth people's while to uh, go look up. As I say, it wasn't broadcast here, but at least go on to YouTube and look up Subwoofer and uh, look up Give That Wolf a Banana and Eurovision as well, but mostly Subwoofer. I mean, they are the biggest band in the galaxy by their own Twitter feed that says the biggest band in the galaxy. we got to go with that. <laughs> uh, go to Ormasuna, Carl Hendrick Wall. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank, thanks, thanks for having us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today is the deadline for bidding, for bidders, to put in their offers for the Ottawa Senators. That franchise, of course, up for sale. It's been up for sale for a while now. We've heard lots about this with lots of celebrities, Snoop Dogg and The Weeknd and Ryan Reynolds until very recently when it was announced that he is no longer seemingly involved in this, but... A team you'll recall here in Hamilton, you will recall that we should have got here in Hamilton, let's be honest, we should have, didn't play the game properly back then. Ottawa got this team, an expansion team, for $50 million, now could sell for over a billion, some people are saying. Let me bring in Moshe Lander, uh, Lander who's a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Uh, thank you for this, really appreciate your time this morning. No worries. When you look at the biggest franchises in the NHL, Ottawa is nowhere near the top of the heap and a billion dollars. It's staggering. It is. Uh, but, you know, that's that's why so many people want to bid for this team. Uh, NHL franchises, like any other professional sports franchise, uh, go up in value significantly and, and it's a great investment. So, you know, we're talking about a billion now. Uh, we could easily be talking in six months about a franchise that goes for sale for one and a half billion. And I'm not talking about the big ones like Toronto, Montreal, or the, the Rangers. Yeah. I mean, this is not the issue for the day today, but when I heard, when we've been talking about this, it has crossed my mind. If the Ottawa Senators are worth a billion, what is Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment with their various teams and buildings and real estate? Well, I mean, it's it's staggering what they would be worth at this point. Anyway, discussion for another day. Uh, do you believe, so today is the day they have to, I guess, do we know what the process is? I guess today's the day that the bidders have to put in their best offer. Is that essentially what we're talking about today? That is it. The sealed envelope ends up on the desk of Gary Bettman uh, by the end of today, essentially. And, and so, 
Yeah. No, no. And, and do we know then how that works? Is this, is this like a real estate transaction? If you were going to buy a, a home and there was one of those situations where they say bids won't be taken until Saturday and then the real estate agent opens them all, goes back and says, Hey, do you want to sharpen your pencil? You're close. Or is it just, do we know how the choice will work? So you use the real estate analogy and that's probably a good one, right? Because when you sell your home, uh, for many people, the highest bidder is all they care about. Right. But some people have some compassion also in, in what they're doing, right? If, uh, you know, you see a young couple and uh, you feel for them, you might give them a little bit of a break. And so I think it's going to be essentially the same thing here, that it's not just top dollar wins. Uh, the the Melnick daughters, who are now the owners of the franchise after their father died, uh, you know, might look at it and say, all right, this one's offering 1.1, this one's offering 1.2, the 1.1 is at least somebody who is connected to Ottawa, which is a, a, an important factor for them. Uh, and so that might trump money if the numbers are, are close to each other. So, you know, there, there's going to be some discussion between the NHL, which wants the maximum dollar, uh, but also somebody who is going to be now a member of their club. And so they're going to want to make sure that it's the right person. Uh, that that is a strategic fit with the other 31 franchises. Yeah, there's a couple of things you just said there that uh, one of them is as long as it's close. I, I don't see them being compassionate to the person who comes in at 500 million uh, on the billion dollar no. bid. But also you're right. The, I mean, every sports league has had the owner that the league wishes had they didn't have to deal with. So yes, it is. Uh, there's also that part of it that you want to make sure you don't get someone who's going to cause you headaches for years and years and years to come. That brings us to who the people are. There have been, and it's, it's kind of been a weird hodgepodge of celebrities who have, who have emerged in this one. Ryan Reynolds, who I don't know that he has, he's Canadian, don't know if he has any connection really to Ottawa. He's a Vancouver guy, nonetheless, has a great show on, uh, a great reality show called Welcome to Wrexham, which I'm sure has caught the NHL's eye. You've got Snoop Dogg, who... I don't know where that one came from at all. And the weekend, how much do you think celebrity factors into this, if at all, really? Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting that you're presenting it as the Ryan Reynolds, Snoop Dogg, and the weekend bids, uh, because their their uh, share of whatever bid would come forward is going to be small. Remember that Jay Z was often presented as the co-owner of the the New Jersey Nets, uh, and it emerged that he owned like one half of 1% of the team, hmm. right? Yep. So uh, I, I don't think that these three are, are putting up anything more than their name uh, to a billion dollar bid. Uh, but that is going to play a factor from the NHL standpoint, because again, these are three people that have expressed an interest in owning a franchise and would probably want to do something then. You mentioned Ryan Reynolds, uh, although he's dropped out uh, as his his backer, uh, he had said that he wanted to create content, and that's something that's hugely important to the NHL. They're always looking to expand their fan base. Uh, Snoop Dogg does have a lot of presence in in Los Angeles uh, at Kings games. Uh, he has said that he likes hockey, uh, that he wants to be a part of hockey, uh, and that he wants to invest in uh, minority uh, hockey. So, you know, it, it kind of makes sense. And the weekend is from greater Toronto. So he's never going to get a piece of the Leafs. This is about as close as he's going to get geographically and otherwise. So, you know, it makes sense, but the NHL is going to look at, again, the dollars and cents of it as much as the celebrity. of it. Yeah. And, and look, Ryan Reynolds, I don't know if you watched Welcome to Wrexham. It was a very entertaining show. It's, it's a story, basically he and another actor, uh, Rob McElhaney from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, they bought this fifth division Welsh 
soccer team in a rundown town that was struggling. And it's a great show. It's a great story. But I don't know how much legs that has after two or three years. If you're choosing someone to create a reality show, essentially, or that content, I don't know that that ultimately is the thing that has staying power beyond a few years. You need someone who is going to make sure this thing operates properly. You're right. And so that's why, you know, he is just the front man for uh, a deep pocketed financial backer. What the attraction was, was he said himself that what he would be interested in doing is creating content to walk through what's probably going to be uh, one of the very first things that the ownership group has to settle into, which is negotiating a new arena deal. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, in Calgary, uh, there's still uh, (laughs) not finished with their arena negotiations. And this is eight years into the process. Uh, so, you know, he's got the potential here for a long running series uh, if it keeps running into to issues. And of course, the Sens have not done particularly well on the ice. So uh, while it's not necessarily fifth division wealth, Welsh <laughs> soccer, <laughs> uh, it is a team that hasn't made the playoffs and has had a really bad public image since Daniel Alfredson left yeah, years that's, ago. That's true. Very uh, quickly, we only have about 15 seconds here. Is yeah. this something now that happens quickly? Because they do have a draft coming up. They do have free agency. The, is this something that you anticipate will be done very quickly or does this get drawn out for weeks and months now? No, it's going to be done quickly. As long as the check clears, you will definitely have a new ownership group in place by the draft. So this is all going to be done within a month. Well, one of the people who is in the mix is uh, Hamilton Bulldogs owner Michael Anlauer. He's been a favorite for a long time. We will uh, we will see if there is going to be a connection to that team. Uh, Moshe, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Anytime. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Ottawa is being forced to renegotiate with Stellantis. Amid fears, the automaker will scrap a new battery plant unless the federal and provincial governments match hefty subsidies given to Volkswagen, the star has learned. Industry sources warn that Stellantis, the parent company of Chrysler, Jeep, and Fiat, could pull the plug on its 2022 agreement to build a massive electric vehicle battery factory in Windsor if Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier Doug Ford don't sweeten the deal to the level VW received in St. Thomas. That subsidy announced by Trudeau and Ford three weeks ago, could give the German automaker up to $13.2 billion in public money over five years to build a gigafactory near London that would employ 3,000 workers once it opens in 2027. It sounds like we may have opened a Pandora's box. Eric Cam is professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, international monetary economics, and implications of monetary growth at Toronto Metropolitan University. He joins me now. Eric, thanks for this. Anytime, Scott. Uh, this, uh, again, I don't know that we should be shocked by this. If I owned a company that made a similar product to what Volkswagen is proposing and I saw the government handing out $13.2 billion, I'm sure I'd be in line saying, where's mine? Well, of course you would, but you know what? It's, it's actually very timely you asked this. Last week I was at a conference of economists, about 50 economists. So, of course, you get 51 opinions. Huh. But the but the one thing that was unanimous is that is that the government should not should not be held ransom by Volkswagen. It seemed to be on both business and economics and even just the moral implications of this. Nobody liked the way it just did not pass the smell test. I mean, everybody wants industry and everybody wants business in their area, and that's wonderful. And I'm all for that. But when you start being you know held over a barrel by a company. Knowing, by the way, that, yes, while it will create jobs and it will create incentives, it'll also increase the gross domestic product, not of this country, but of the country that owns 
this car company, which is not a Canadian dollars, um, it really leaves you lacking. With so many things that our government could be doing with our public dollars, I mean, this is really not much different than building, building a sports stadium. I mean, should public dollars go into private ventures? And a lot of people, me included, say often, no, it really doesn't pay. So this really does leave a bad taste in the mouth of not just me, but many economists, both public and private sector, Scott. I know that some people are probably saying, well, okay, fine, let Stellantis rant and rave and kick up a dust cloud, but ultimately they're going to stick around, so whatever. The problem with that is, in this particular case, Stellantis is also building a brand new uh, electric battery plant in Indiana, which is just four hours south of Detroit, and experts apparently are saying easily they could expand that to capture what they're going to be doing in Ontario. So this, of all the ones, this sounds like it may not be an idle threat. It may not be an idle threat, but I don't know about you, but as I tell my nine-year-old, I don't negotiate with terrorists. And so this is the part that you're going to have to think about if you're a government. What do you do? I mean, there's really a fork in the road. You just give in and throw them all the money that they want and hope that they open this and future plants here. Or are they just going around playing poker with anybody who will sit at the table trying to ratchet out the best deal they can? Now, by the way, if I worked for that company, I'd be doing the exact same thing. I'd be sitting at the table going, who's going to throw the most money at me? And that's where we're going to open up our branch plant. But you know what? As easily as they say they can be coming in, they can easily say that they're going out. And so, you know, you really have to measure this. And again, this really does kind of reek in some way as, as blackmail. And it kind of bothers me. And I really, it's again, I sat around with all of these economists and I said, is it just me that this bothers? I mean, I want this here as well. But does, is anybody else concerned that we could be doing other things with this money and attracting other types of industries that are just being less nasty at the bargaining table? And everybody agreed that this really could set a very dangerous precedent in terms of billions of dollars being thrown at a company that doesn't even... Uh, emanate from Canada. So I would I would be nervous, even though I know that the stakes are high, but you know, that's what governments do. But the idea is if 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 you had never negotiated, then fine, you can take a hard line stand. But how does the Ontario and federal government turn around to Stellantis now and say, I'm sorry, yeah, we gave Volkswagen thirteen billion, but there's nothing for you. I, I don't know how you make that case when you've shown you're willing to spend this. And right there, you're right. That's exactly the problem. What are you going to do? You've played your hand. You said, we're willing to give this non-Canadian company a fortune to come here, and now we're going to draw the line. So it's really hard. But that doesn't mean that hard decisions don't have to be made and lines don't have to be drawn, because you're going to just set a dangerous precedent if this happens every single time, that you're going to give away the farm for a company to come here and open up their shop. And, And again, you're right. So the line in the sand has been drawn. They said, we're willing to do this now, but we're not really willing to do it again going forward. And again, that's a dangerous game, but negotiations are a dangerous game. And so there really is no great answer here because at at an organic level, I would not have given the money to Volkswagen, and neither would most of the economists in this country. So the government here, as they tend to do, is kind of going by the seat of their pants. That's a dangerous proposition. We know that. That is Eric Cam. He is a professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, international monetary economics, implications of monetary growth with Toronto Metropolitan University. You'd probably need a fold-out business card for all that. Anyway, thank you for doing this, Eric. Really appreciate it.
It's an honor. Stay healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Mike, who's to blame for no Canadian teams winning a Stanley Cup in three decades? I'm going bad luck, Scott, but seriously. Like the fact that we are dealing with seven Canadian teams right now out of 32 and nobody has won since 1993, that defies a lot of odds. That's like saying the Leafs would go from 2004 to 2023 without winning a round. Yeah, it, it, it seems almost impossible. Like I, we were talking about this actually just about half an hour ago here. I'm not a statistician, but if, if I was an actuary, I would love to sit down and figure this out. I mean, they, they must be extraordinary odds that nothing could have gone right for a Canadian team along the way. And you can try and put in little things. And here's maybe part of what I fear, Scott, going forward. And that is that the odds of a Canadian team winning a Stanley Cup will continue to be difficult and maybe get harder because attracting free agents will be harder. This is now moving, as other leagues have, to a league where the players have way more power than they used to. And they can say, hey, I don't want to play in this market. I want to go to a place where it's sunny and hot. I want to go to a city like New York or Chicago. I want to play there. I want to play somewhere where I live in you know, obscurity so that I can go to the grocery store and buy some lettuce. That's something that really doesn't work in Canada in terms of being able to say, yeah, don't worry, you know, life will be exactly what you want and the weather is perfect every month of the year. So in free agency, you're going to see teams, you know, there'll be players who want to play for their favorite team, but you're going to see teams maybe struggle a little bit more to attract players. And let's not forget the other big word, taxes. Uh, which tend to be in a lot of places in the States, a little more favorable for the players. Let me go back though. We got Edmonton, we've got Toronto. They were both for, for many people, many people, myself included said at least one of them is bound to be in the finals this year. The way things had broken down, Boston out, Tampa out, Colorado out. One of them is going to get through, not the case. Is it possible? And I know a lot of people pointing to what happened, especially in the Leaf game with you know, the no call at the end on the winning goal when Gudish uh, held uh, Yarncroft's st- stick and the goal that wasn't called. Is it possible for two things to be possible at the same time, that the Leafs and the Oilers disappointed, but also that the NHL has an officiating problem? Well, I mean, you can look at any sport and say what's happening with the officiating. We have so many angles, so many replays, officiating is subjective always has been and i do not believe that any league is favoring one team or going against one team and i've always had this rule of thumb if you believe officials are out to get your team watch 10 games that don't involve your team and pretend you are the fan of one of those teams and see what you see because you'll see missed calls The problem is we've got video that highlights those missed calls. We've got people who do stats on, wow, when this referee referees this team, the record is this. It's going back to what we were talking about before, Scott. It's it's odds. It's, hey, the chances of that referee having a, a perfect losing record against a certain team, nobody's counting that up. And referees are there to do their jobs. I wish we would give referees more breaks because here's the other part. If we continue to be as hard as we are on officials, how many kids want to be officials right now? How many parents want their kids to be officials? Seeing what happens at the minor levels in hockey, soccer, you name it. 
we're going to run out of people who are able to officiate our sports. And then, I don't know, what do you do? Eye in the sky officiating? That doesn't work either. We need the officials. Mike, I've long thought, especially in hockey, that it would be advantageous to have an official, one on the ice and one upstairs who can watch it and see what they can't see. But that's a a long, in-depth discussion for another day. We only have a couple seconds left here, which I wish we had a lot more. Uh, your thought, so Edmonton had four guys being highly paid, Leafs, five guys really, but four, and they call them the core four. Do you think either team next year comes back looking like they did, or is this it for both of them and they say, it's not working, we got to restart? I think Edmonton rolls it back. Scott, I think the Leafs have a lot of decisions to make because in that core four for Toronto, you've got Austin Matthews, and William Nylander heading into the final years of their contracts. You need to find out from them, are you staying? Do you want to be here? Because if they're not, you need to move them. We could see trades for either of those players. Would we see both of those players? Not sure, but that's the to watch for. And that's going to happen fast. It will. Because there are no moves that step in as of July 1st. So buckle up, Leaf fans. This is going to be quite the offseason. Mike, appreciate you jumping in this morning. I know how much you got going on these days. Really appreciate it. Mike Stubbs from uh, from 900 CFPL. Thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.